Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Hello and welcome again to another edition of Lost in Science, which is half an hour where we, the Lost in Science team, talk about sciencey things. And who are we? Well, I am Stu, and I am joined this week by Claire. Claire, how are you? Hello, Stu. I'm very well. How are you? I'm great. I'm great. Now, what have you got for us this week? Well, we have a special guest this week. I don't know if you knew this, Stu, but there are some forests that are not on land, but they are in the water and they are in danger. I am, in fact, talking about kelp forests. You know, kelp not, forests. Uh, not, not, not the forests of Atlantis? Or not, the, not the forests of Atlantis. No, no, kelp forests. And our guest this week is Aaron Eager, who is a kelp forest specialist. Um, He's a postdoctoral research fellow and founder of the Kelp Forest Alliance. He's going to tell us a bit about why kelp forests are so important, because they do make up a lot of Australian coastlines, why they're so important, why they're at risk, and, you know, one of my favourite subjects, which is what and how we all can help, you know, what citizen science is happening in this space because there is a lot of citizen science happening and the kelp forests just aren't going to get better by themselves how you can help kelp self self help kelp (laughs) self help help i don't know ways to uh ways to stop the kelp going the way of the subject of my story this week i'm going to be talking about one of our favorite topics and isn't it everyone's favorite topic dinosaurs Oh um, yes, great. Look, you know, it's it's amazing that these creatures have been extinct for millions of years before the first person ever even thought about anything. And you know, we were probably digging out bones of dinosaurs without knowing what they were for years before anyone figured that out, which was relatively recently. But we're still finding out more about them all the time. People mm. are fascinated with them. And, and they do give us some real insights into evolutionary processes and things that we don't really necessarily uh, understand all that well about existing animals. So, you know, there's a whole lot of things we can learn from them as well. But I'm talking about uh, some, you know, some big name dinosaurs that everyone will know about and how they are probably not what you think they are and you know they they are they are the 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 image that everyone has in their heads of how these big name dinosaurs like t-rex uh is probably probably completely wrong Ah, okay we've we've probably given them a bit of a a bit of a makeover in the wrong direction possibly does steven spielberg have is is he to blame I'm not going to lay the blame, you know, solely at Steve's feet in this case. I think it's it's a result of 
of numerous misunderstandings over the years, but you know, hopefully we can we can take a new look, a fresh look at our old friends in the dinosaur world and maybe, you know, maybe start thinking about them slightly differently. Anyway, that's coming up later in the show, so please stay tuned. When you think about deforestation, you probably don't think about kelp forests in the ocean first and foremost, but these incredible habitats are on the decline across Australian waters and across the world. Our guest today on the show is Aaron Eager, and he is founder and program director of the Kelp Forest Alliance. And Aaron is here to talk all about these incredible forests and what we can do to help the ecosystems that they provide. Aaron, welcome to Lost in Science. Hi, Claire. Thanks so much for having me. Happy to, to be here to chat about how we can help the kelp. Firstly, can you talk us through what a kelp forest is and I guess why they're so important? For sure. I think kelp forests are many things. And in one sense, kelp forests are forgotten forests. And you mentioned Australia and the world, and, and really, in both those locations, they're dominant marine habitat. They're really the fabric of the ocean for southern Australia and about a third of our world's coastlines. So these are plants, marine plants, seaweeds that form the foundation of coastal habitats in cold and temperate waters. So anywhere you don't have a coral reef, you have a kelp forest. So they're the thing that's providing habitat for animals, that's producing oxygen, that's producing biomass, that's giving structure for animals to live in, that's supporting fisheries, cultures, pulling down carbon, removing water pollution. They're really essential for the health of oceans across this range, maybe from about 30 degrees in the tropics all the way down to the poles. Right. Okay. So they are pretty widespread in terms of their distribution. Yeah, about a third of the world's coastline is a kelp forest. And when we say kelp forest, we mean a kind of seaweed that grows big in the water column. So it might not be like your nori or your seaweed wraps, but it's something that's like a forest. It grows structurally, dynamically, and and provides a lot of complex habitat. Are there different species of kelp? Quite a few. There's maybe about 30 or so groups of what we call true kelps. And then there's sort of pseudo kelps like crayweed that we have here in Australia, which is maybe just a little bit evolutionarily different from a true kelp, but it provides a lot of that same structure and that same importance where it's creating habitat, it's a big primary producer. What's common across kelp that makes it such a good habitat? It comes back to that that structure. So you think about a rocky seafloor, and that's often a very structureless space. It's just sort of flat. Maybe there's a few low-lying other types of seaweeds on it. But with kelp forests, you get complex, dynamic, three-dimensional habitats that give a lot of spaces for tiny little things, from little snails and amphipods and microscopic animals to live in, all the way up to whales can interact and weave through a kelp forest. So it's, again, providing that space for things to live, things to hunt for other animals and provide that basis of the food chain. And then they, again, they just draw down an intense amount of carbon. They're incredible primary producers. 
some types of kelp forest. We could go snorkeling one day, come back the next, and the forest has grown by about a foot. You can almost imagine them growing as you watch them in the ocean. That is an incredible amount of growth. You'd be very hard-pressed to find that sort of growth with any plant on land. Yeah, no, they're, they're absolutely incredible in that sense. And it is a bit of a shame that they have been forgotten for so long, despite their, their importance all across the world. And you think of London or Tokyo or Sydney or New York or Los Angeles or Vancouver. All of those places are right next door to a kelp forest. You can just head to the coastline and you'll find one of these wonderful habitats. But people who live there would much more traditionally hop on a plane or three planes to get to a coral reef to go for a snorkel or a scuba dive. So that's what we're trying to do is raise the profile and awareness of these habitats that have been there all along. They're, again, the foundation of our coasts, but just haven't received the same amount of attention as other marine ecosystems. Absolutely. So you mentioned um, that that's what you're trying to do. Is this your work with the Kelp Forest Alliance? Yeah, the Kelp Forest Alliance started as a bit of a PhD project where we're trying to provide information for people who are trying to do restoration. You know, what decisions can they make to make sure their restoration projects are the most successful? But as we started collecting data, we started to realize, you know, data alone is not going to be the solution to this problem. We really need to connect people to that data and connect people to each other and start to build this global movement of people who not only care about kelp forests, but are motivated to kelp forests and have the capacity to do restoration and conservation for kelp forests. So we still have a very large science focus in our work of providing the best available information, being sort of a trusted home for information about kelp forests. We also now really try to bring that human element into it and connect kelp forests to people and get them to care these underwater forests. What are the major threats to kelp forests? Well, in the same way that they're diverse, the threats are a bit diverse. They've got a lot coming up against them when you start to list it out. Overhanging threats, as, as with many ecosystems, warming oceans are not great for many kelp forests. They tend to love cold water. That's their niche. That's their habitat. So as the water gets warm, they get stressed, they die, they fail to reproduce, they can just be wiped out. Western Australia lost about 800 kilometers of kelp forest habitat along the coast due to a heat wave in 2011. Wow. And then other places have seen similar stresses and disappearances of kelp forests over the years as we have heat waves and these sort of warming events. So background heat is not a friend for a kelp forest. Other factors are overabundant sea urchin populations. And so sea urchins are these tiny spiky things that you might step in in the ocean if you're familiar. And they're a natural part of the ecosystem in many places. But as we remove sea urchin predators, these are things like big fish or sea otters in North America or lobsters here in Australia. Once we take these animals from the ecosystem, there's less predation on the sea urchins and so they can grow bigger in population size, and as they get overabundant, they can just wipe out a kelp forest because they, they love to eat kelp. And they can also expand their range with the warmer waters. So a lot of times you get a double-pronged attack where they're moving into a new habitat because the waters become warmer. The species in that area aren't used to dealing with them, and the ones that would perhaps be able to be controlling them, such as the predators, they're being depleted in their population. So there's just this sort of gap for sea urchins to fill and when they do they can turn a really lush dense kelp forest into an essentially flat 
convectionless, almost moonlight surface. So those are really the two between warming and urchins, but short list of other items, water pollution can degrade habitat, sedimentation from land use change can stop kelp from settling and regrowing. Few places have problems with overharvesting, but most kelp is actually aquaculture these days, and there's not very many wild harvest projects left. Can you talk us through some of the, I guess, citizen science around kelp forests or other ways that, other tangible ways that people can help kelp? Well, if you're a snorkeler or you're a diver, we need to understand how the kelp forests are doing. And there's a lot of coastline. And there's only so many scientists or project researchers out there to go collect that information. So we're seeing an expanding network of citizen scientists that can go out and check and monitor on the health of kelp forests. We know if they're being stable, if they're increasing, if they're decreasing, what the outcome of some of the restoration projects might be. Keeping a good check on, on that information is really important to make decisions about future management options. And then it is potentially a bit cliche, but as you vote, that kelp forests and healthy oceans are not separate things. They're, they're very much intertwined, and we need to come at this from a really holistic standpoint. And so politicians that are, that are doing things to promote clean, sustainably used oceans, or more recently, there's the 30 by 30 targets, or the Montreal Protocol, which was announced in December. And that was a, a global mission or a global call to protect 30% of the world's habitats by 2030 and restore 30% of degraded habitats by the same year. And so we've adapted that to kelp forests and we're tracking and monitoring and advocating for its application to kelp forests. So if you wanted to write your local member of parliament a letter asking why they haven't joined the kelp forest challenge or how they're incorporating kelp forests and other marine habitats into this announced and secured global commitment to protecting and restoring habitats, then there can be a lot of response to that sort of community call. I guess just um, before we finish, I want to get a good understanding of what you think success looks like when it comes to kelp forest protection. I think hope is a very important part of conservation and restoration. But when it comes to kelp forests, despite there having been sort of lack of activity in the past, I do think we're at a very hopeful sort of acceleration point where we're now seeing this coming together. So through our work with the Kelp Forest Alliance, we now have about 500 members, 25 countries, all people who are very, very keen to help the kelp. It's an incredibly supportive and collaborative community. And we're making those interests and those requests known to regional governments, federal governments, international bodies. I think we are really starting to see the movement of Help the Kelp campaign, the Kelp Forest Challenge that we put together, uh, which is a global mission to protect and restore 4 million hectares of kelp forest by 2014. And I genuinely believe we can get it done. It's a huge task before us, but we've got an amazing team of people here in Sydney, an amazing group of people worldwide. Well, Aaron, thank you so much for joining us today. And thanks for talking about all things help and how we can help absolutely if anyone has ideas we're always receptive it's not limited to scientists or politicians we have artists who are making kelp art we have filmmakers making short films we can be very creative in these sort of solutions 
What are you onto? Anything of interest to the uh, scientific community? Together, you and I are going to make the greatest single contribution to science since the creation of fire. It's a big scientific experiment. What do I know? Across Australia on the Community Radio Network, you're listening to Lost in Science. I don't know how old you were in 1993 when Jurassic Park was released, Claire. Oh, I was nine. Eight or nine. Nine years old. Yeah, yeah. And, I, and I that, did that, see that. That was a pretty big deal. Oh, it was a pretty big deal. I saw it at the pictures at the movies. I loved it. Oh, it was my favourite movie for many years. At the flicks. At the flicks, yeah. And, you know, it was it was hailed, and quite rightly so at the time, for its special effects, bringing to life on the big screen species of animal that have been extinct for millions of years. And in the years following, the film technology, film technology that began with Jurassic Park has given rise to ever more sophisticated CGI, and the film industry has advanced a lot kind of as a result of, you know, this this kind of uh, amazing technology they brought. Yeah. But so, too, has our understanding of dinosaur biology. And while we always have had a fascination for these giant creatures, since they were first recognised for what they actually were, which is less than less than 200 years ago that people actually worked out what these giant bones they were digging up actually were... Now, the most obvious criticism people have of the Jurassic Park films, and particularly one of the big stars, the Velociraptors, um, <laughs> is is that it turns out they're not really anything like what they're represented as in the film, or they weren't really anything like what they're represented as, as in the film. They are actually more like giant turkeys in, in size and... Uh, you know, um, shape. As that one unlucky child points out in the film, only to be scared into pants-changing territory by an irate paleontologist. <laughs> um, I, I, I do love that scene, the look on that kid's face when he gets his claw out. It's very funny. Now, look, velociraptors were probably very small and much more bird-like than they appear in those films. Um, they probably even had feather-like growths on their skin wow so they would have looked almost almost hairy rather than scaly as we've seen them in the movies um they're only about seven kilos in mass really so they very heavy yeah how, um they're not how the did they get it beasts. so wrong this is explained away in the film you know the wonders of genetic engineering right. and how they've you know doctored things so they're you know they're an approximation of a velociraptor not a not a direct copy i suppose but even as smaller creatures they would have been quite scary with their bared teeth and their speed they wouldn't have been pleasant creatures to come across to stumble across in the undergrowth while you're walking around but they also lived a few million years before the T-Rex. But again, the magic of movies puts them together <laughs> with their equally ferocious and toothy cousin, who is one of the big stars of the film series. Big star, um, big know. star. I mean, just one of the yeah. big stars of the dinosaur world, right? I mean, the biggest yeah, star. Yeah, I mean... You can't have a dinosaur movie yeah, without he, a T-Rex. No, you've got to get top billing for the T-Rex every time. 
But there's another thing the films have probably got wrong. The flashing teeth constantly bared is apparently not likely to be a good representation of either of these dinosaurs. Really? So, according to new research published in Science, in the journal Science, in March, the T-Rex and the Velociraptors probably had lips. (laughs) Like, Like modern lizards. Not exposed fangs like crocodiles. Whoa. So what? Yeah. Isn't that isn't that mind blowing? So looking at the skull of a T Rex, the teeth are an obvious and prominent feature of the skull. And it's easy to assume they're too big, too large to be contained inside the mouth of the animal. So they must be sticking out. And, you know, lips are soft tissues and they don't last very well as fossils like hard features like teeth and bones. But by looking at the teeth, uh, this team of Canadian paleontologists can still figure out some facts about dinosaur mouths. So the enamel thickness of T-Rex teeth is similar to teeth found in constantly hydrated environments, that is, inside a mouth covered by lips rather than the uneven enamel found on exposed teeth like crocodile teeth. So they can compare the fossilised teeth with modern reptile teeth and they've figured out, yeah, actually they look more like the teeth that are inside a mouth all the time. Um, they also found also found that T-Rex teeth were smaller in proportion to the skull than some modern predatory reptiles who also have lips. So from a from a biomechanical point of view, they could have easily been covered up rather than have to be exposed in the way that we have been, you know, have assumed that they always were. So we have a good idea from this research about what the lips look like. Is there a photo of T Rex lips getting around on the internet that I can look at ASAP? um look it's probably not what you they're not they're not like kissy kissy lips like (laughs) soft lips like like mammals have which they're you know they're scaly lips like if you think of something like a like a lizard or a snake like a a skink or a gecko or something like that rather than right you know the lips of a of of a horse or a or a chimpanzee or a human Yeah, you're just thinking. You're just thinking of a T Rex with with like big lipstick. Lips, I am. I, I am. Just, it's all can, I'm thinking. I can of. see it in your face. Yeah. <laughs> but you know the the idea of the idea of that their teeth being covered up when they're just walking around rather mm. than having these exposed gnashes all the time it makes them seem much more like a real animal than a monster. And of course, you know you can still think of a monster. They still make that terrifying roar. Well, at least they do in the movies. But, um, you know, in much the same way, we've got no real way of knowing how any of the dinosaurs might have sounded or how they might have used any vocalizations they did make. Um, You know, we know how animals use, you know, sound to communicate with others of their species and that sort of thing and, and as warning and all sorts of other reasons. But we don't really know anything about what dinosaurs would have sounded like. So in film representations, many animal sounds have been used 
historically often combined to make dinosaur roars, which makes a whole lot of sense from Mm. a filmmaking perspective because of the role that they're playing in the movie, but not a lot of sense from a zoological perspective when you consider that they're actual were living animals and how they would have behaved. So Japanese scientists have recently published a paper about an ankylosaur fossil dug up in Mongolia in 2005 where they're examining its airways and looking for clues about vocalization. So ankylosaurs have been found all over the world and they were around, they crossed over between uh, the period when velociraptors were around and T-Rex were around. They were all over the world. They were very, very successful species that lived for quite a long time comparatively to other dinosaurs. They're those stumpy, armoured ones. They look like a four-legged tank yes, um, with a yep. big club-like tail. Tail, yeah. You know the guy. Yeah. Um, now, some features of the ankylosaur airways suggest they may have had more complex vocalisation abilities and could have possibly had vocal skills similar to modern birds. Wow. Rather than the growls and Mm. grunts and hisses that crocodiles, which is, you know, an Mm. an animal that, you know, we know makes noise. And some of the other, you know, the monitor lizards make hissy noises and that sort of thing. But looking at the looking at the airways of these ankylosaurs that they've that they found or this one that they found in Mongolia, they had a very good um, fossils of its larynx and the other parts of its airway which can be used for vocalisation. But one missing piece of the puzzle is that modern birds have an organ called a syrinx in their throats which allows them to modify their vocalisations in a much more diverse way than non-avian reptiles which is what we refer to, you know, the non-bird you know, yeah. ancestors of modern birds. Um, and this organ has not been found in non-avian dinosaurs at all. So it has been found in some of the pterosaurs, the flying dinosaurs, but it hasn't been found in the, you know, the land-dwelling dinosaurs that we think of as, you know, the the um, the classic dinosaurs, I suppose you might want to think of them as. But, you know, this is still, this is still, it's ongoing research. This is one of the things. The more we find out, the the more we're informed about what dinosaurs looked like and what they possibly sounded like because we really have no idea. And it's, um, you know, the chances are there is a huge gap between the movie monsters that we all know and love and the living animals that we're actually studying when people you know, do paleontology, um, there'll be huge differences between how they looked and how they sounded. Um, but that information, I guess, won't come from bones alone. And that's all we have on another episode of Lost in Science this week. Lost in Science is recorded on the lands of the Kulin Nation in the studios of 3CR with the kind support of the Community Broadcasting Foundation and broadcast around Australia on the Community Radio Network. If you'd like to be in touch with us, we would love to hear from you. You can find us on email at lostinsightgmail.com you can find us on Twitter, where we are Lost in Science 1, 
or you can find us on Facebook where we are Lost in Science on 3CR. Or maybe you just want to tune in again next week when Claire, Stu and Chris get lost in science. Thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.